Right. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Y'all awake out there? You made it through daylight saving time. Huh? Got an extra hour of sleep, right? Well, very good. Well, uh, it's good to be back together uh, this morning. And for Sunday School moving forward, what we're going to do is we're going to be making our way through the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, for some of you who uh, were with us a couple years ago when we were over at First Pres meeting over there, um, we went through the shorter. Um, and then uh, so the session thought, you know, it'd be good to go through the larger. And we're going to talk a bit of this morning about a brief history of uh, the Westminster Standards and in particular uh, some of the things behind the larger catechism. And uh, also really answering the question, is the, studying the larger catechism worthwhile? And why do we have it? Um, and as well, if we have time, uh, I don't want to blitz the time too much, but if we have time, we're going to also at least begin, if not uh, go through and finish the first question of the larger catechism. So if you want, I did make some handouts, so you can, and they're up here in the front, if you didn't get one and you would like one uh, to follow along, you can write on them, answer questions, and keep it for your own study uh, benefit. So let me open us up in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you that we can come and study your word. We thank you that uh, your spirit is present with us. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, would work in our hearts and minds, understand your word even more, and uh, that we would take great benefit of it, and um, that we would give you praise for it and all glory. Uh, we pray that you would be with us now in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So let me begin, as I said, with just kind of a brief history of uh, the standards and the benefit that we have in having the Westminster Larger Catechism. And by the way, if you don't have one of these, this is the OPC's uh, Confession of Faith and Catechisms, uh, printed and bound. This is also available online. You can find uh, the Catechisms and Confession uh, in a lot of different online resources and websites for free. Uh, but if you would like a printed version, this does have the scripture proofs with it as well. Um, it's available on the uh, OTC website through the bookstore there. Um, and, uh, or I even have some copies if you would like some, and I'll give them to you for free. So, um, But in regards to the history and, and the, the Westminster Larger Catechism itself, is there benefit in studying it? Now, it's true that unlike the, the shorter catechism, uh, the larger catechism has really suffered a lot of neglect in Presbyterian and Reformed churches. Um, there have been a lot of commentaries written on the shorter, right? But there have been actually pretty few written on the larger. And even there's one fairly well-known one that is pretty hard to find nowadays that was written back in the 1700s. And so is the larger catechism worthwhile? Absolutely it is. So what is the, then the history? Where did we get and why did we get the, the catechisms and the confessions uh, of the Westminster Standard? So in the year 1642, okay, uh, many Englishmen had taken up arms against King Charles I. Uh, many of them were Puritans who wanted to change in worship and theology, and they wanted changes in being true to Scripture that King Charles and his Roman Catholic wife had long opposed. Okay, they were not in favor of it. They put a lot of barriers for that to happen. Um, and uh, so the, the Puritans were rising up along with others. So by 1643, that next year, uh, the English parliamentarians had lost a lot of battles with the royalists. And so they appealed to the north. They appealed to Scotland, okay, and they asked uh, the Scots, who were also very unhappy, uh, to help them against the king. And the Scots agreed to help, but they had a condition, okay, as long as the English subscribed to the Solemn League and Covenant, okay, the Solemn League and Covenant. And the first point of that covenant stated that both countries were to be reformed in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. 
Okay, so doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. And so to achieve this unity, the English Parliament called a church assembly, an ecclesiastical assembly. And in 1643, it did that to produce, quote, a confession of faith, a form of church government, directory for public worship, and a directory for, quote, unquote, catechizing. Okay. So that was its mandate. That's what they brought the assembly and constituted the assembly to do. Okay, and so the, the first purpose then of the Westminster Assembly's proposed catechism, like all of its documents, uh, shorter, larger, and the confession, was to achieve religious unity. Okay? Other catechisms existed at this point. This wasn't the first okay, catechism. But in their view, right, a new one was necessary if the worship of the English and the Scottish churches was to be uniform. And so beginning in December of 1643, the Catechism Committee of the Assembly worked on this catechism, and it reported back to the Assembly frequently for public discussion. Okay. Other debates at the time uh, sidetracked the Assembly and their progress, and other committees made faster progress. Okay. But the, the divines, or they called them the Westminster divines, and really divines, their ministers, right, they completed the Confession of Faith first, and they handed it to the Parliament in December of 1646. 1646. And so finally, in January of 1647, the Assembly gave up on the idea of writing one catechism that would be suitable for all purposes. Okay, that was their first attempt, right? That was their first idea and goal, just write one catechism that would be a shotgun blast and would take care of of all areas, all purposes in one document. But they decided that doing that uh, wouldn't be possible or wise. Okay, Richard Vines was an English minister at the assembly, and he spotted the problem and he made a motion that the committee for the catechism prepare a draft of two catechisms in which they have an eye to the confession of faith and to the catechism already begun. Okay, so they had already started work on the catechism, or a catechism at that point. But in this, in this decision to split it up and to make it more robust, which we'll find out here more in a moment, um, they wanted to not abandon the work that they had already done, but they wanted to expand on it. And they wanted to dive in deeper. And so the, the Scottish commissioners at the assembly... In a report to their church back home, they supplied a further reason for writing two catechisms rather than one. Okay? They said, it's too hard to serve milk and meat in one dish. All right? It's too hard to serve milk and meat in one dish. But in their view, this difficulty then prompted the assembly to make one catechism more exact and comprehensive, and the other more easy and short for beginners. Okay, and so in terms of efficiency, this was a good decision. And in by October 15th of that same year, the assembly completed the larger catechism, and a month before Christmas, the divines presented the shorter catechism to Parliament. Okay, so this was 1647. So sometimes you may hear in reference to the Westminster Standards, are we talking about the 1647 originals, or are we talking about the American Revision? Okay. And so we're talking about the 1647 originals. So these were finished, finalized in 1647, presented to Parliament. Okay. And so then we see that the catechisms were designed to promote religious and political unity between England and Scotland, and more obviously then to instruct God's people in matters of faith, and life, with the larger catechism providing the more exact and comprehensive instruction. Okay, so what, what is true uh, in many cases and most of the time, as I mentioned at the beginning, how the shorter catechism gets more time and ink, right? What is true? A lot of people are spending time in memorization and catechesis in memorizing the shorter catechism. How many of you have, have worked on memorizing the shorter catechism? Very good. 
How many of you have finished memorizing the Shorter Catechism? Really? That is incredible, Annabelle. Um, so, yeah, you're in progress, right? How many of you started or tried working on, uh, how many of you have read the larger catechism? How many of you tried working through and memorizing it? Okay. Yeah, so, but we need to see the benefit of that, cate that catechism and also then the differences, and this is what I want to talk about briefly next, and that is kind of the comparison between the larger and other catechisms. Why did the larger need to be written? Again, we can't put milk and meat in the same dish. Um, that's an obvious reason, right? Um, but respected teachers in Britain had composed good catechisms. Uh, Calvin's catechism was already available. Okay, so it was the Heidelberg catechism at that point. Remember, the Heidelberg catechism is uh, from the Dutch Reformed um, uh, tradition. And the Heidelberg Catechism is the catechism that is part of the three forms of unity. Uh, you can find that catechism in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. Uh, you can, and it's a, it's a wonderful catechism. In fact, the Heidelberg, if you put the Heidelberg and the Westminster Catechisms next to each other, I would say an easy comparative statement is that the Heidelberg has a pastoral tone to it. Um, and the Westminster uh, catechisms are more of a kind of have a have a technical precision tone to it, uh, so to speak. Now you could add much more to that conversation, but but a good question then is why could the assemblymen not agree to use one of these catechisms, right, for the purposes of unity and instruction? And the simple answer is that they thought that the earlier catechisms could be improved upon. Uh, but the, also that the framers of the catechisms then took what they thought was best expressed elsewhere and brought it together into the Westminster Catechism and the larger. One of the things that we see and, and one of the main differences between the Westminster Catechisms and the earlier catechisms had to do with the Apostles' Creed. Okay? The standard practice of catechisms written earlier had been to expound on the Apostles' Creed. Phrase by phrase, just as they did the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. But the Westminster Assembly decided to exclude the, the Apostles' Creed because though, of course, the Creed is scriptural, it's not scripture. Right? And so they wanted to avoid, in avoiding the Apostles' Creed, um, it gave both of the Westminster Catechisms two strengths. First, the Catechisms are based explicitly on scripture. Both of them are which is consistent with the position that's expressed in the first chapter of the Confession, right, on Scripture. The, and the, the Confession of Faith starts with Scripture. All of our doctrine comes from Scripture alone. And second, every catechism that uses the Apostles' Creed reflects one of the weaknesses of the Creed, that there's no mention of the importance of Christ's life. And so the Westminster Divines also wanted to expound on that doctrine in the Catechism. Uh, the Apostles' Creed also says that Christ was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Right? And then what does it say next? He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Similarly, the, the Heidelberg Catechism moves right from Christ's birth to his death. And the same thing is true of Craig's Catechism, which was a popular catechism in 1581 and the new catechism in 1644 so as we compare the larger and the shorter with previous catechisms as a useful exercise that i think is beneficial for us as the church and it reveals that the westminster catechisms explicitly base their teaching on scripture and emphasize christ's life and active obedience as well as his death and resurrection and for these reasons also then the catechism is very worthwhile to study. But does the church really need a larger catechism when it has an excellent summary in the shorter? Right? Um, the answer is yes. And the reason for that is pretty simple. The larger catechism is neither a mere summary, because sometimes we may think of the larger and think, okay, well, the shorter's brief. It's the high points. Um, and is easy to work with and memorize. The, the larger is just more expansive. 
right? And, uh, and in, in one sense, that is true. The larger is more expansive. But <clears throat> the larger catechism is neither a mere summary of the confession, nor is it um, a just kind of wordy expansion of the shorter, okay? At times, the larger catechism asks different questions than the shorter. So it doesn't just go into more depth on what the shorter is already teaching, Right? It also expands and it adds and, and, and uh, teaches on additional doctrines. And sometimes these added questions uh, might not strike us as all that important. Right, Maybe question 16, where it talks about and teaches us about the creation of angels. And then question 19, where it asks about God's providence toward angels. Right? But on the other hand, those things are very valuable in my mind, and I think in many others, because it's teaching us the breadth of what God teaches in Scripture as well. It is good to have and to understand the doctrine of angels. Right? It is good to have teaching and to be able to meditate on that from the Word um, and have a, a you know angelogy, uh, the study of angels, and also... Uh, be aware of what scripture teaches us about demons, about fallen angels. All of that's very important. So at other times, the contributions are more obviously significant, right? The larger catechism, for example, gives us rules to interpret and apply God's law and spells out the differences between justification and sanctification. The larger also goes into more detail about our triune God than the shorter does. It has more to say about Christ. The larger has multiple questions on the mediatorial role of Christ. That's Christ as mediator. That's what mediatorial means, kids, if you didn't know that. Right? Christ as mediator. And Christ's humiliation and exaltation. So these and other contributions show that the larger was written to take us into heavier matters of the word of God. But perhaps the largest remaining contribution um, is one that Robert Godfrey, and some of you may be familiar with Robert Godfrey, uh, used to be the president of Westminster Seminary. He's connected with Ligonier, of course, and other, you see him in other places. But he pointed out that the larger catechism frequently speaks of the church, whereas the shorter, generally speaking, is more concerned about the individual. So the larger catechism frequently mentions ministers, Godfrey points out, of the gospel and carries an extensive discussion of the outward and ordinary means of grace. Okay? So prayer, reading of scripture, ministration of the sacraments. Whereas the shorter says almost nothing on these matters. The larger broadens its view to include the corporate, public, gathering, people of God. And God, Godfrey appropriately warns that where the church has neglected the larger catechism, there could be a lack of teaching about the church. So just kind of pull this all together in terms of the history. I know this is kind of a 30,000-foot uh, view, uh, but I think as we move into looking at the catechism and studying it, it's helpful to know how we got it, why it was written, and the benefits of it, okay? Especially when it's been kind of uh, under-evaluated uh, you know, in many ways in the past and even in the present. And so there are many reasons why the larger catechism is worth our study. For it, it unifies Presbyterian and Reformed folk who use it as one of their standards. It gives us the meat of the word. It places a greater emphasis on and gives, her fuller, gives us fuller explanations of doctrine that maturing Christians need to hear. Right? So if you think of the shorter catechism as being kind of the milk, so to speak, you see the larger as being the meat. It emphasizes aspects of the gospel and draws directly from scripture in a way that other catechisms do not. And the larger catechism emphasizes the church, the ministry, preaching, and the sacraments at a time when Presbyterians and, in fact, all Christians need to hear them. And so it's definitely worth our time. Any questions about the history of the standards or uh, the history of the larger catechism and things that I just went over there? All right, very good. So 
If you look at your handout that has been passed out, and again, if you don't have one and you need one, uh, let me know, and we've got a few more up here. But the, the larger catechism begins in the exact same place that the shorter catechism begins, right? Probably one of the most quoted and uh, quotable and recitable uh, catechism questions that folks remember off the top of their head, right? If you, um, if you and I know y'all don't have a copy of the, the catechism with you, uh, in front of you, but I do want to point out uh, one thing here. What is question number one of the shorter catechism? What is the chief end of man, right? And what's the answer? Man, excellent. Yep, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay, and so as we look at the first question of the larger catechism, is it the same or is it slightly different? Different. Slightly different. Let's read this uh, together from your handout. What is the chief and highest end of man? Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. Amen. So what's the difference there? One of you kids. Kids, what's the difference there? What did you hear that was different between the first one that we read and said out loud and the second one? There are two main differences. Can you, did you pick them up? Anybody? Anybody can jump in. Yeah. In the question it says, what is the chief and highest end of man? Right. What is the chief and highest end of man? And what's the second difference? Fully. Yep. The words highest and the word fully. Right? So the highest end is to glorify God and to fully enjoy him forever. So what does the Westminster Larger Catechism, question number one, what is it really focusing on? Where is it beginning? It's, it's beginning with the reason for the existence of man, for the reason for the existence of human beings, why God created us. And this reason cannot be found in man himself, right? And this is so because what is true? God created man. And God created man in his own image. And man, as originally created, was a true image of God because he was God-centered, right, rather than being man-centered or self-centered. Okay. By the way, if you've ever uh, acquired a copy of it, I would highly encourage you, regarding the Shorter Catechism, G.I. Williamson's, uh, book on the Shorter Catechism, Study Guide on the Catechism is helpful. Uh, some of this material in today's lesson regarding question one uh, is coming from Williamson's work there. But um, also there is there's a good commentary uh, that involves Williamson on the larger catechism as well. It's more of a, and it is more of a commentary, not so much of a group, uh, you know, course or group class interactive study guide. <clears throat> and so man being created in God's image um, is important, right? And the focus is on God. Man's one thought and desire before sin ruined everything, right, was to serve God and to do what? To delight in him. Adam in the garden had full communion with God, right? Uninterrupted, unashamed, wonderful beautiful, um, marvelous relationship of communion with God, his creator. And so when Adam first sinned against God, all of that was changed. And instead of thinking about how great and wonderful God is, Adam and Eve, um, man became more uh, pulled into themselves, right? Adam began to think more and more about himself in his shame, and definitely we see as a result of sin and the curse. 
he began to think of what it would be like if he would be great and how he could enjoy himself. Um, It's often true, even in today's world and today's context, right, that it's all about Captain Me, right? It's all about me and, and my wants, my desires, my world, um, what I want, I, 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 me, 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 and if any of you have watched Brian Regan, don't start laughing about it because he goes into all that too. Anyway, I went there. Forgive me. Um, but so it's all about him. Right? It's all about it's all about man. It's not about God. And and so if and so really what this catechism question and, and the catechism in general is reorient reorienting us to in instruction is getting our eyes off of ourselves and returning it back to our Lord and God and our Creator and uh, who He is and what He has done and what our purpose is. Again, what is the purpose? for our existence. Why has God created us and what has he called us to do? And so the person who seeks the good of man as his chief end, we're really seeking our own good. Okay? For the simple reason that that's who we are. We're sinful men and women. We have eyes that are focused on us and not so much on him. Being focused on God right, is a supernatural thing that is accomplished and done by the work of the Spirit. And him alone. Otherwise, we would stay in that place of focus on self. And so really, it is only the Christian, the the person who truly believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, who can glorify God then and enjoy him forever. That where the shift then moves to enjoying self, glorifying ourselves, to truly glorifying God and enjoying him and seeing that as our highest and chief end. We're going to look at scripture here in a moment and see more about what God teaches us in the details regarding that. But what does it mean to glorify God? If someone were to ask you that, how would you answer that question? You know, yeah, I hear that on the podcast. I hear it on the radio, on the internet all the time. I hear it in sermons and lessons um, regarding question and answer number one what does it mean to glorify God how would you answer that question elevate him to the highest point of honor in my life Hmm. yeah yeah what else anybody else does to glorify God does that make mean to make God glorious no He already is, exactly. Exactly, yeah. He already is. God does not have (coughs) lack. He is not limited. He did not create man in order to fulfill some need in himself. Right? And so he has been glorious from all eternity. And nothing created by God can ever make him more glorious than he already is. So to glorify God, therefore, must be understood in this way. It means to reflect God's glory. And we see this to be true in Psalm 19, verse 1. Let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 19, verse 1. And if someone could read that. Very good. Yep, the heavens declare the glory of God. You know, the beautiful world that God has created is something of a mirror. And if you look into that mirror, you can see the glory of God. So the chief end of man, or the chief end, excuse me, the chief end of the heavens and the earth, especially the spoken of in Psalm 19, then is to declare, to show forth the glory of God. Well, what else does Scripture teach us about glorifying God? Let's look at Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Let's 
Romans chapter 11 and verse 36. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. So we see God's uh, relationship. We see the intention that God has established regarding creation. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. And to him and to him alone is glory forever. Right? And so there is that, that, uh, that qualifying word of time, right, in that word forever is important. This, this, this isn't something in which we give God glory once, twice. We give God glory in this life and not the next. No, we give God glory and are to give God glory forever. It is unending because glory is due to him for all eternity. There is never a time in which that glory and that giving him glory should stop. Right. He is forever to be praised. And so, in fact, we see those wonderful pictures then, right? Even in the book of Revelation, for example, of the worship, the adoration, the praise um, that is happening and will happen forever um, from his saints, right? Um, and so it is. It's, it's a wonderful picture because this is what we will be doing for all eternity and worshiping and praising and glorifying God. Um, for he is worthy and he calls us to do so. And so the, this, these times, right, it's been said before, you may have heard it before, but these times uh, of Lord's Day gathering and celebration and, and worship together. Um, these are but a foretaste of what we will be doing for all eternity, right? And so uh, glorifying God and doing so forever is important. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6.20. And if somebody could grab 1 Corinthians 6.20 and somebody else, uh, same letter, different chapter, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Okay. Okay. All right, very good. And ten thirty-one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Okay. So what do these two verses have in common? They have a common connected message, don't they? What do you see that in that connection and what God is telling us and teaching us to do regarding how we should glorify him? You reflect God in both body and spirit. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Yeah. It's not it's not concerning a a future glorifying of God. It's it's concerning a present glorifying of God, right? And what we're doing now. And what and how we're living now. Right? Turn to Psalm 86, verse 9. Psalm 86, verse 9, all back up to verse 8. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. In verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. So we see here who is going to be glorifying God, who the Lord is bringing in and gathering in to glorify his name. He is gathering his people from all nations, right? To give him glory, to worship him, right? And there is a reason why that is true. Not only does he call us to do it, but the reason is, is because he is the great, the only, the true and living God. Right? 
But the Catechism goes on to teach us in question number one what that not only is our highest and chief end to glorify him, um, but it's also to enjoy him forever. And before, actually, before we go into that, let me spend, let me say just a few more things about glorifying God. Um, in the case of men, right, as we think back to Psalm 19 and the heavens declaring the glory of God, in the case of men here, there's a difference, right? We are, we are commanded, we are called, but we are also invited to do this thing. And, and the Lord works in us that we would uh, be willing and privileged to do so. The heavens cannot help but declare the glory of God, but we are given the wonderful privilege of doing so in call and duty and willingness. And this is what Jesus did when he was on earth in service to his father, you remember John 17, 4, he said this in his prayer, I've glorified thee on earth. I finished the work that you gave me to do. All right, so he did the will of his father. That was his concern. He did it because he wanted to do it. He wanted to please his father. He wanted to give us an example. He wanted to be obedient. Um, and in this way, Jesus glorified God and will enjoy him forever. But on the, on the flip side of the coin, there are many who don't want to glorify God in this world. They don't want to enjoy him forever. In fact, none except those who repent and put their faith in Christ do. But since there are many who don't want to glorify God, it seems that the catechism maybe is incorrect when it says that man's chief end is to glorify God. But the catechism is correct. And why is that true? Even if a person does not want to glorify God, even a person who does not serve God willingly, he still remains subject to him. The potter still has power and authority over the clay, Paul tells us in Romans. He has power and authority over the same lump to make one vessel of honor and the other of dishonor. So what if God was willing to show his wrath, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he beforehand prepared unto glory. That's Romans 9, 21 through 23. So in other words, we also need to keep in mind that both lost and elect and saved uh, people are instruments by which God's glory is revealed. By the means of the one, those who are saved, God's mercy can be seen and is praised. But by the means of the others, those who are lost, God's wrath and justice can be seen and honored. He still receives glory. The difference is, is that in the case of those who are lost, who don't repent and believe in Christ, God causes them to glorify him even though they do not enjoy it. But in the case of those who are saved... They come to want to glorify God, and they do enjoy him forever. So that's important to keep in mind. But so, why is doing so our chief and highest end? It's, it's true, of course, that the Christian may have other ends in life, right? Goals, aims, purposes. Worship alone, in other words, is not the whole of the Christian life. Nor is evangelism or witnessing for Christ or even service, right, in and of themselves. That's not the whole picture. Many Christians do their daily work in places of business and in such a way that they do glorify God. But glorifying God is what we are created to do and called to do. And therefore, it is our, our chief and our highest end. And so when a, per when a person seeks to glorify God... He seeks at all times and in all activities alike to do that which is well-pleasing in God's sight. Faithful work is just as much a part of glorifying God as the worship of the Lord on the Sabbath, witnessing to an unbeliever, etc. It's no doubt true that some things that we do are more important than other things. 
But all that we do, all of life, should be viewed and have in view the glory of God. Remember that the biblical view of Christian discipleship sees the whole of life being consciously lived to God's honor. And in the service of his name. All of life is to be what? It's to be God-centered. It's not to be man-centered. Again, where question one is pointing us to and reorienting us. And so, in order to know how we can glorify God and enjoy Him forever, we must learn the way of salvation taught in the Bible. Right? We must learn what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. You see that wonderfully expounded in the moral law and the Ten Commandments in both tables. We, we will see more of that and consider more of that as we progress through these questions in the larger catechism. And so then, how are we to fully enjoy him forever? Now, we've already kind of, you've heard me intermingle that word in, in some of the scriptural discussions that we've already had. But I want to look in the rest of our time here at four more scripture passages. Turn with me to Psalm 73, verses 24 through 28. And can somebody grab that one? Um, someone else stay in Psalms and, and grab 16, 5 through 11. I got the first one. Okay, thank you. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. But it is good for me to draw near to Very good. What? Okay, hang on one second. That's great. So what do you what do you hear in that passage? God is our portion forever. Right? He is the one in which we truly have eternal satisfaction and rest. He is the one that we eternally have joy in. Joy in his person, joy in his works, joy in communion with him and in fellowship with him that will be for all eternity. Right, And so as we consider enjoying him forever, from this passage, I would encourage you to think more about those very wonderful descriptive words of God being our portion forever. Again, it's not a limited time. It's not a limited time offer. It's not a limited time experience. It's an eternal. It's eternity face to face with the living God. Enjoying him in that way. The, <clears throat> as God is the living God and all others are dead and false. Um, this is also something to have, be of great encouragement. Have great encouragement and comfort in. Right? Even if we consider and think about evangelism. And even for some of you who remember back to our series when Caleb and I worked through apologetics with different world religions and other things like that. If you consider other world religions, none of them, absolutely none of them, have any characteristic or quality that would even come anywhere close to this of enjoying their God forever? No. So far from it. Right? Doesn't exist. But it does with the living God. He is a relational God. He calls us. He draws us into relationship. He is our father. We are his children. And, and we have this wonderful familial relationship that we will for all eternity. And he fills our cup. He fills it to overflowing. We can truly enjoy him in the purest and fullest sense of that word. And that's awesome. Okay, Psalm 16. Cam, you got it? Read it out loud, really loud, okay?
Yeah. So what do we experience? We see, the, again, the, the fullness of our cup, the pleasures forevermore, um, the, this wonderful, abundant relationship and connection with God and blessing from God for all eternity um, that we experience in, in many ways now, but even in more of its, in, in its complete fullness, right, in that which is to come. Well, if we look at John 17, verse 21 through 23. John 17, verse 21 through 23. And I'll begin actually in verse 20, just for some context. This is where Christ prays for all believers. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The love of the Father to his Son is that same deep love that the Father has to us as his children. Christ was praying, what? That the Father would be gracious to us, would, be, would extend his, his gracious blessing to us in opening our eyes and our understanding, that we may see these things, that we may grasp these things, and we do here as the, the Spirit reveals them in His Word this morning, right? That, that, um, that we would have such unity in Him, right? Just as Christ and the Father are one. Um, so see these, these wonderful blessings and the gifts that Jesus not only was present with His people, uh, in person, in the flesh, um, he was not only walking amongst them and ministering to them, ministering to others in their midst, being a, a godly and perfect example of righteousness and, and showing them the pure and true love of the Father. He was not only doing all of these types of things, but he also was praying for them, praying for us that we would know these things, that we would see more of his care, of his love. And indeed, that does point us to our enjoying him as well. Final passage before we close this morning, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. There we read, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye, their eyes, and shall, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Here is the tender care of our God as he makes all things new. Even as he has saved us from the guilt of sin, he is saving us from the power of sin. He will save us from the presence 
of sin. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain. But we will know his presence in its fullness. He is present with us now, but we will see the fullness of that together with him. We, his people, he, our God, even as it is now and will be forever. And so again, more of kind of this beautiful picture and portrait of our enjoying of God as we consider his benefits, his gifts, his presence, his love, and his care toward us. Praise the Lord. Does anybody have any comments or questions before we close in prayer this morning? With love and obedience be a good summary of glorifying God? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there, um, uh, Dr. Joseph Pipa put out a good, um, so when you look at the kind of a, a good summary for the standards, um, Ligonier has some general stuff. It's not too like in depth in one document, but you more see things such as the benefits of the confession or the history of the confession, the history of the catechisms and, um, all of the three documents of the Westminster Standards came out of the same assembly, the same body, right? And so you'll see, you can find information about the history of the assembly and their work, uh, kind of like I summarized here. I'll be happy to send out some links and um, some information on, you know, how you can do further study into the background of that and kind of what was going on at the time. And also uh, I can send out some good commentaries and guides through those documents. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning, G.I. Williamson has a great series on it. Um, he did one in on the Westminster Confession. He also did one on the Shorter Catechism. And then he was also involved in um, one regarding Voss's work on the Larger Catechism. All right, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Justin, would you mind closing us? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these teachings about the Westminster Divines and the larger and shorter catechism. Uh, help us as we set our minds on uh, worshiping and glorifying you. Help us not only uh, to worship you in church today, but to be worshiping and glorifying you in all areas of life. We ask all of these things in the name that is above every name, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.